For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. How many mass shootings have you covered in your career? <laughs> Far too many. And you know, when I started out more than a decade ago... If you're like me, and you heard the details of last week's mass shootings in Lewiston, Maine, and thought, not again. That goes double for Mark Fullman over at Mother Jones. Mark has been covering mass shootings for a decade now. He's built a whole database to chronicle how alarmingly common they've become. He started with that movie theater shooting in Aurora, Colorado, back in 2012. It was only six months later that we saw the massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. And there were a number of attacks in between. So it was really that year, 2012, where I began to focus intensively on this problem and, and build the database. And you say in the years since then, the number of these incidents has tripled by your count? The frequency has tripled over the past decade, yes. The news out of Maine last week hit notes that were maddeningly familiar to Mark. The gunman with a rifle picking off strangers in public. The grainy surveillance footage released by police. And then there were the warning signs. Reports that National Guard supervisors referred the shooter for a mental health evaluation. That the police had even been warned about him and visited his home to track him down. In theory, Maine's yellow flag law should have given the authorities the ability to petition a judge and take his firearms away. We have some developments just now out of Maine. Officials are giving an update on the... By the time elected officials in Maine held a press conference about the shooting late last week, even the reporters seemed fed up. We get a, we get a flag law used in this case. You are a big advocate of them. Do you know if they were... This reporter repeatedly tries to pin down Senator Susan Collins and ask why the shooter wasn't prevented from killing his neighbors. She says to the senator, given this shooting... This yellow flag law, it doesn't seem to work. No, I don't know whether there was a report to trigger the yellow flag law. There, It's certainly on the face of the facts that we have. It seems, could you, could you let me finish, please? Uh, Mark says, this frustration, it's almost inevitable. Yeah, well, let's talk about the term yellow flag for a minute, because that's really an exception to what's known more commonly as a red flag law or an extreme risk protection order, right? It's a, um, a policy that's intended to remove firearms from someone thought to be turning dangerous. That's a process, a civil process carried out in a court. Even with that, in a lot of states, there are 21 states that have this policy now in, in various forms. Um, in many places, it's really underused or not used at all. But here's the thing. Mark, he has not given up on a solution to mass shootings. He just thinks we haven't put the right ones in place. Not yet. When these happen, we already, in a sense, know the story. Uh, but I think therein also lies the hope because there's a lot that has been studied about this problem and there are ways to disrupt it and prevent it through a broad range of policy ideas. Today on the show... 
Could anything have prevented last week's mass shooting? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before Robert Card, the shooter here, or assumed shooter, walked into a bowling alley in a bar and started killing people, what do we know about who he was? Well, from the reporting we have so far, he was an army reservist, um, was not a combat veteran, which is one of the first things I wondered when I saw the initial reporting that he, he had a military background. There were a number of reports about uh, warning behaviors and warning signs, people who were concerned about him, who were around him. Yeah, there was this story that he showed up in New York for some kind of reservist training and his superiors said, hold it, you need to be evaluated for your mental health. That's right. And apparently he had begun expressing um, some paranoia to colleagues, to um, fellow soldiers, uh, getting into conflict with them, expressing grievance, uh, reportedly had talked about hearing voices. Clearly, he was generating serious concern to the point where uh, commanders at the National Guard, where he was having contact, were referring him for mental health evaluation. Mark says this initial warning sign is where things can get confusing. In the case of Robert Card, and in the cases of other shooters, too. Because a simple mental health evaluation, it isn't designed to prevent violence. A person like this perpetrator, clearly was raising very serious concerns. So what should an evaluation figure out about him, in addition to possibly a clinical diagnosis? From the perspective of prevention and the work of behavioral threat assessment, which is the field of work that seeks to stop these attacks, you're really looking at a much broader picture of an individual, trying to understand what's going on with them. What is the source of their grievance or anger or paranoia or depression? And trying to get them help trying to steer them away from the the kind of violent ideation and planning that's beginning to develop that's causing concern among people. And of course, the first thing you would do in a situation like that of serious concern is try to find out if this person has access to weapons and are they planning to use them in this way to commit an act of violence and to try to remove them. I think a little bit of what you're saying is that a mental health evaluation like this it's a sensitive test, but not a specific one, which is like a medical term. It can ping like, OK, something's happening here, but we don't know exactly what. And so in the wake of incidents like these, we look back and we say, oh, we should have known. But what you're saying is like, actually, the test wasn't the right test in the first place, even though it should have alerted us in some way. Right. I think you could look, you could look at it as a start. Um, it was gathering some important, possibly very important information about this individual, but it can't stop there. I mean, this goes hand in hand with, I think, another big misconception. We often hear in the aftermath of these events 
that if only the idea that, you know, if only we had a better mental health system, or if only this person had gotten mental health treatment, then this never would have happened. And that's far too simplistic, as we can see in this case, because this person, although we don't know the details, had a, an extensive mental health evaluation over a period of two weeks. The process of evaluating and then intervening with a troubled person like this doesn't begin and end with that. It has to take into account a much broader set of information, circumstances, and then work to follow up and to manage to essentially the, the work of threat management to deal with an individual like this. It's interesting to me to look at what happened in the following weeks after this mental health evaluation, too, because just in the last day or so, we've had this main firearms dealer come forward after the shooting to say he actually prevented Robert Card from buying a silencer in the days leading up to this shooting. To buy it, he had to fill out this 4473 firearms transaction record form, which asks whether buyers have ever been committed to a mental institution. He came in and filled out the form. He self-incriminated himself at that point. He checked off the box. You know, we know that he did actually legally purchase firearms too, but it's interesting to me to look at this incident where he was prevented from getting a silencer because to me it shows more problems rather than solutions. Like the only reason he was prevented is because he filled out this form, Form 4473 from the ATF, and he answered honestly, we think, saying, you know, I have been detained for mental health reasons. And then the shop said, well, we can't sell this to you then. The police heard the noise exactly. Can you imagine what would have happened if he'd had that silencer on that gun? They'd have never heard the noise. But to me, I see that and I think that's just like a recipe for someone walking into the next place and just lying on the form. Right. Well, that that is a remarkable detail from this case, right, that that he answered honestly. And I think, as you suggest, this points very directly to really the, the weakness of our regulatory system, whether at the state level in Maine or, or nationally, that someone who admits to having a serious mental health condition in this moment can't buy a particular accessory for his firearm, but he can still go out and buy other firearms legally, which we know he did shortly before the attack. A local sheriff has also said he issued a statewide alert about CARD. What do we know about that? My understanding is that that went out, uh, that law enforcement then sought to locate him at his residence and were unable to find him, and that that was sort of the end of it. I mean, again, this is we're still early in the investigation, so we don't know all the details, but that also suggests, obviously, there was very significant concern about this individual, the reported threats he was making, uh, the reported mental health issues that he was having, also coming from the family, that some family members that were apparently very deeply concerned and reporting him. So this is all good in the sense that here you have multiple people in different settings sounding the alarm. The question then is, what does the system do about it? Do we have a good enough system for evaluating and intervening and also for limiting or restricting access to firearms? I think clearly we know tragically, again, from this case, the answer is no. Is what happened here, like a series of alerts that didn't really add up to anything in the end, is that typical, looking back at your research from previous shootings? There are other cases like this um, going back in time. There was a mass shooting in Santa Barbara in 2014 where the perpetrator there had been subject to a welfare check by local law enforcement a little over a month before the attack, a fairly similar timeline to this case, where, again, the evaluation in that moment um, didn't 
produce enough evidence or concern or legal basis to take action uh, to intervene with that perpetrator, to stop that perpetrator from uh, using the weapons that he had already collected. So yes, I think you know we do see a history of this with mass shootings and it shows us that we're not doing enough from a prevention perspective uh, in terms of gathering information um, in a centralized method or through a centralized process and then acting on it in ways that can disrupt this kind of violence. And we know that it's possible. I mean, there are many cases where this has succeeded. We just don't hear about it often in the news because there's no violence. So it doesn't make the kind of uh, news or get the kind of attention that, of course, the mass tragedy does. After the break, is there another way? Mark tells us about behavioral threat assessment in action. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's talk about what this threat assessment could look like. How would a threat assessment team have entered the life of someone like Robert Card in an ideal world? Yeah, I think we have to acknowledge that a case like this is, is in a category of more difficult uh, situations because from what I can tell from the reporting so far, he was a fairly isolated individual. And often threat assessment as, as a model for intervention works best in a, in a structural setting like a school system or a workplace environment. I think in this case, theoretically, you would have a threat assessment team working within the military context to evaluate a person like this um, after the threats have been reported and the mental health concerns have been reported. And what the team does is bring together collaborative expertise in mental health, in law enforcement, um, in human resources. So it's not just a psychiatrist. That's right. It's, it's multiple people who have been trained in the evaluation and intervention of, of targeted violence, of planned violence, um, who are going to look at the, the range of information about a person's behaviors, circumstances, conditions. The point here is that you're not just trying to um, take one action and say case closed. It's not just an evaluation. It's not just trying to arrest a person and put them in jail temporarily. Those things will not fix this problem. This is about figuring out what's wrong with a person who is beginning to plan violence of this nature and dealing with it over a longer term period. Can you walk me through an example of a successful behavioral threat assessment that helped prevent violence? Sure. Well, I write about a number of cases in the book, uh, primarily in an education setting. There's a case I tell in particular about a high school student who I call Brandon in the book, who was 
like many cases, including in Lewiston, was making threatening comments and communications to people around him. Talked about bringing a gun to school on a Friday and shooting up the school. And this was one of several comments of this kind that he'd made over a period of time. So other students became alarmed when they heard this and reported it to a faculty member. Uh, that went to the student threat assessment team in this school district, uh, in this case in Salem, Oregon. Uh, the team there, very experienced, started to gather information very quickly about Brandon, um, first uh, assessing whether or not he had access to a gun. He had told another kid that he had gotten the code to his father's gun safe and was going to bring it to school. So that's very specific information. That's right. And, and with information that specific, that raises the level of alarm for a team. Uh, Brandon had made less specific comments previously, so now this was a sign of potential escalation. Um, this is one of many examples of how a team will evaluate and measure specifically the level of danger in a case. How did they gain the trust of this kid to actually get him to explain what he did and what he wanted to do and potentially prevent it? That's a great question. So th the team has worked hard within the school system to cultivate a culture of safety and awareness and to extend help to people who need it. It's essentially telling the community, we're here to help constructively as much as possible. We don't want to kick kids out of school or arrest them and lock them up. We want to help them. But even in this case, you know, with, with a troubled um, person in military service or a veteran, uh, I think the same principles apply. You would have a team essentially saying, we're here to support you, to help you. We want to know what's wrong. We want to help you get what you need. Um, and I think through that process in, in this particular school example, they were able to engage with both the student and his parents to interview him, to talk to people around him, to learn more about what was going on with him and to get him help. In this case, through counseling, through independent education support, through some social services, and over time, watched him improve. I followed this case for, for the better part of a year, and it was very interesting to see kind of the ups and downs. Uh, but the trajectory, once the team got involved using what they called their wraparound strategy, um, and essentially pulling this kid closer, not, th not throwing him out or arresting him, but pulling him closer and giving him help. They were able to steer him away from violent thinking and planning and get him to a better place. He went on to graduate high school and, and was doing fine afterwards. With Brandon, I'm a parent. I could see an argument from the school district like to protect the other students we need to separate this child from the community. And I think what you're saying is that's actually not useful or functional. But at the same time, isn't that a huge risk? It's a very fraught question emotionally. Um, I think the answer, though, is that in most cases, keeping a kid like Brandon close and helping him is the better solution. So would Brandon come to school and like they wouldn't no one would be like, so, Brandon, did you bring a gun today? Like, I mean, it's it's just, it's, it's it's difficult for me as a parent to imagine, like, how do you manage that day to day when you know this child has these thoughts and these things they're considering? Right. Well, this is a case where, importantly, crucially, as you suggest, the team had to determine, first and foremost, does he have access to weapons? Can we keep him safe and those around him safe if he comes back to school? And only upon answering that question, yes, of course, would he be allowed to come back? There were some additional security measures taken behind the scenes for his initial return. 
But once the team felt comfortable that he was not going to get access to a weapon, and that was also through steps like working closely with the family to monitor his possessions, both to and from school, um, there was a sense of confidence that this was a kid who was thinking in this direction, but was not operational yet. Uh, was not equipped with with the firearm he he had said he wanted, um, didn't have specific plans to attack, and at that point could start to work to intervene to help steer him away from this. I think some people hearing about this behavioral threat assessment approach, they'll think that is just a tremendous amount of resources and time and investment for a potential attack. And just, it, it must be like a needle in a haystack. I think it's it's a significant investment of resources. Um, it's not intended to to do like dragnet surveillance or to find a needle in a haystack. Really, it's it's meant to be in place so that when a case of concern comes to the attention of a person to a community, then there's a system in place to do something about it that can evaluate and intervene effectively. There are broader benefits to doing this work too from what I've seen in my reporting over the years, that threat assessment teams are not only trying to stop the terrible mass shooting event, but they're also dealing with other individuals who may be raising concern, maybe of a lesser order, but who need help. Um, And this is particularly relevant in terms of suicide risk too. I saw that in a lot of school threat assessment programs as I was doing the research for trigger points, that there were many cases where you had kids with suicidal thoughts who were getting help through these programs. They weren't necessarily planning a violent attack, but they were still benefiting from this being in place. For me, my interest in this subject really grew out of the question, what more can we do to solve this ongoing national crisis? You know, many years ago, I became frustrated with the gun debate, the politics of gun violence, that we were going around and around in circles about how to regulate firearms. That's a very important debate, and it's one that has evolved and it will continue to go on. But that can't be the only way we think about solving this problem. Yeah. There, I mean, this congressman from Maine, Jared Golden, made news last week because he had been opposed to banning assault weapons. Yeah. But this shooting changed his mind. And I sort of wondered if you saw that and thought, well, <laughs> that ship has sailed. Like, <laughs> you know, the, the weapons are out there. There are hundreds of millions of them. That's exactly what I thought. You know, the, the, the idea of banning assault weapons, it's really a non-starter. Uh, there are more than 20 million AR-15s in circulation in the country now. But I think much more important in the context of this case, of Lewiston, the terrible tragedy there, are red flag laws. Why, why aren't our representatives in Congress talking about a national red flag law? There's very promising early research on the efficacy of this policy to intervene with people who are uh, showing risk factors for suicide and homicide. And so why don't we have more investment in that kind of prevention? I think that would be a better place to prioritize the gun regulation discussion than banning assault weapons. And it might be something that Democrats and Republicans can agree on. That's right. It has it has broad bipartisan support. The reality is that these laws can be effective if they're resourced properly, used properly uh, through a civil court process. They've already been shown to be effective in preventing suicide and mass shootings. Mark Fullman, I'm super grateful for your time and your research. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Good to talk with you. Mark Fullman is the National Affairs Editor at Mother Jones. 
He's also the author of Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. And that's the show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus and sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time. 